The fear and anxiety as a result of the coronavirus and our quarantine is off the charts. And it reminds me, frankly, of the fear and anxiety that we all faced after 9-11. When we were sitting ducks, our country was under attack, and we didn't know what to do and we had nowhere to go. Well, now we're locked in our homes, waiting, waiting to know when it's going to be safe again. Well, this may be the hottest potato I've ever done on Bottom Line Advocator, and it's all about the coronavirus. And it's not about washing your hands or social distancing, but it's about the mass confusion surrounding the sickness and the risk to our population. The news media has been rife with frightening and dire predictions of the end of life as we know it as a result of this sickness. And I think that's going to change too. I think life as we know it will never exist again. Thanks to this fear, thanks to the quarantine, I think we will never be able to get close to people in the same way that we did before. And that's very sad. But here's the thing. Not every expert sees it as the headlines are telling us. And what's really going on and what's the rest of the story? Join me in award-winning Dr. David Shear as we explore some of the most pressing and confusing issues surrounding this coronavirus pandemic. Now, let me just tell you, I recorded this a week ago. So those numbers a week ago, they were almost half of what the numbers are by the time I, I post this podcast. But the underlying questions and the underlying processes and the underlying science behind viral infections, those questions still exist. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. And please rate and review this when we're done and share it. Because if we don't all get knowledgeable and we don't all get a deep understanding, we're never going to get out of our houses. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to welcome back Dr. David Shear, a physician, author, and inventor. He's the lead author of Dr. David Shear's Hospital Survival Guide, 100 plus ways to make your hospital stay safe and comfortable. A member of leading physicians of the world and a multi-time winner of HealthTap's Leading Anesthesiologist Award. Dr. Shear recently retired after 40 years of practicing anesthesiology in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And he's held two U.S. patents in the field of critical care medicine and telecommunications. He's a tireless advocate for hospitalized patients and believes that individual responsibility and not government intervention is the key to improving the general health and well-being of all Americans. Dr. Shear is also the author of one of Bottom Line's most popular blogs, which is entitled What Your Doctor Isn't Telling You, and you can read and subscribe to that at bottomlineinc.com. David, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, and here we are all quarantined up, so we might as well we might as well talk, right? Yes. <laughs> And you, know, you called me the other day with a question and you said, am I crazy? Like, is it, is it me or is there something else going on in the numbers other than what's being reported through all the media? And, you know, I'm watching the world. There seems to be like two, two crews. There's the crew that thinks that the coronavirus and COVID is the, the, the devil, like the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And don't touch. And we just got this press release from our town that said no dogs can come within six feet of anybody. And like, they're afraid of anything and everything. And then there's the crowd that's still going to the beach and that's going, well, this is just another flu. And what's the big deal? And somewhere in the middle is the truth. And that's what we want to talk about today. Exactly. All right. So what do you, let's just start off like high level Let's look at those numbers. You know, when you called me the other day and said, these numbers, like, they're just not making sense based on what they're reporting. So tell me what you're seeing just high level in these numbers at this point in time. Well, when I wrote my original blog for um, Bottom Line and um, I did the research on the numbers, the, the research was based on numbers on about March 9th because the blog went to press on the 11th. And at that time, there were um, 4,373 worldwide deaths and uh, 121,000 infected. And then I wrote to you and uh, discussed with you later that we achieved five doubling times later and the um, death rate had just about less than quadrupled. Um, and there were 372,000 infected at the time after five doubling times. Um, these numbers and doubling times being, let me just clarify, doubling times being that they were, they, right. The, the quote unquote, they's 
were saying that the numbers were going to double every two days, I think. That, that's and it right. just wasn't doubling at that rate. That's right. That was the conventional wisdom that was used between two and three days. That's right. And so what I found in doing simple mathematics was that these numbers were not anywhere near representative of doubling every um, two or three days when you take five or six doubling times into account. And as a matter of fact, um, the death rate also is not doubling at the rate that they have predicted. Um, uh, you know, the typical example being, if, if I gave you a, a dollar on the first of the month and $2 on the second of the month and $4 on the third and doubled it on so on, by the end of the month, you'd have a billion and a half dollars. So um, it puzzled me as to why the uh, numbers were not reflecting what the conventional wisdom was saying. And it, it still puzzles me now. So um, that got me thinking even further about researching what it means to to throw statistics around without really carefully parsing what statistics mean and uh, concepts like relative risk and absolute risk, um, a concept that Dr. Paul Offit, a, a professor of pediatric infectious, infectious disease at University of Pennsylvania, goes into quite well. And um, we can cover that in a little while. But, but anyway, getting back to the original point that you raised, the, the numbers to me continue not to add up and and all we have to go on right now is is numbers and statistics and we have to be very honest about them. Well, and so, I mean, if, if it went to the doubling rate, if it was doubling the way that I'll call it, it was supposed to, have right. you done the math on that yet? I mean, it would be millions and millions and millions of people that would have it. And yes. worldwide at this point, it's right. less than 600,000 worldwide cases. We've got less than 100,000 in the U.S. at this moment in time. Yes. Um, as of about four days ago, when I uh, had written to you with my puzzling email, um, I estimated through the mathematics that there should be between 1.9 and 3.8 million worldwide cases if you account for the doubling every two or three days. And you just told me uh, that we have 577,000 cases worldwide, which is a very far cry from 1.9 million to 3.8 million. So, um, now, and, yeah, go ahead. Now, the, the other piece of it, so, you know, early on, we were all glued to the Johns Hopkins map, which was a beautiful visualization of where the sickness was, and you could see it all over the globe. But I stopped looking at that after a while because they're showing the cases, they're showing the deaths, and they weren't showing the recovery. It was like the classic case of how to lie with statistics because they're not reporting on the recoveds, nor are they really reporting. We don't even know how many people have it because there's so many that are asymptomatic. Right, right. And, and that was a point that was made in a uh, recent email that I had sent you that appeared in the very popular a website, Kevin MD, where a physician went on to note that the, the example of the Diamond Princess ship that was off the coast of California, if you consider that as a kind of an ideal microcosm of an infected population or a population, let's not talk about infected population, let's just talk about an enclosed population of people. Um, in that example, you had 3,711 people isolated on a ship. And the statistics prove that about 18% of those people got infected with COVID-19. Uh, greater than 50% of those people had absolutely no symptoms. And the, there were seven deaths recorded among those 3,711 people for a death rate far less than 1%. So in this kind of ideal petri dish, if you will. We don't like to talk about human beings being a petri dish because we, we value every life. But if you look at the, um, the enclosed environment of that situation, what you find is that the, the death rate uh, and the rate of people getting sick is much, much lower than what the press talks about. I mean, they're throwing around numbers of 
three, three and a half, four or 5% of people dying. And um, for other reasons that we'll talk about, it appears that that's just not the truth. Well, and presumably within that Petri dish, the, um, most of the people on that boat were older. That's true. That's very so true. So even, even yeah. more so, where a lot of this fear and a lot of the discussion is to help protect the elderly and the people that are more immunochallenged, right? So the yes. people that are more vulnerable to getting sick. And even in that case, the numbers simply aren't adding up the way, you know, the, Governor Cuomo was saying this morning there were going to be 140,000 patients in New York in the next couple of weeks, when okay. currently there are 25,000. Okay. So again, um, I, I don't know where Governor Cuomo is getting his figures from or who's advising him. But if you look at the past four or five weeks in the United States, and we don't have a crystal ball, but if you look at the trends, those numbers do not appear to be realistic, the ones that he's quoting. So um, look at populations that have already suffered through this, such as South Korea. The accurate death rate coming out of South Korea is more like 0.6%, uh, according to the data that's been analyzed on um, Kevin MD, um, which appears to me to be a more realistic um, figure if you take into account that the very important principle of, of, of not knowing how many people truly have been infected because you can't, you can't test everyone, number, number one. And number two, we don't know how many people already have been infected and never got sick from it and never had a single sign or symptom from it. So it's, it's so unfair of a headline to read something like 8,000 new cases found in New York. Well, of course you're finding 8,000 new cases in New York because you're testing for it. You didn't test for it in January. So, so you're not going to find it. Yeah, here's the interesting thing. Um, I know several people that are quite certain they had this before it ever became a thing. I know a couple of people who came back from Disneyland in California. Not that Disney was a germ fest, but they came back from California at Christmas time and they had fever and they had cough. I know a couple other people, January, same thing. They had fever, cough, sick, like they were sick. They okay. assumed they had the flu. They right. worked their way through it. Right. So it's even like until it was a thing, it was the flu, right? And somewhere we all kind of lost our minds on the newness of this germ and the vulnerability to getting sick to this relative to the flu, which, oh, by the way, let's review those numbers. Every year, between 30 and 50 million people get the flu. Yes. And, and at the, you know, again, the scope of that relative to what's going on here, and we shut down the entire country. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's something that is a conundrum because you have seemingly intelligent and well-informed people who seem to fail to grasp the relative risk of flu and the damage done by flu. Uh, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, which um, is a reliable source of reporting, uh, their flu data between October 1st and March 21st of this year uh, is consistent with what you just said. 38 to 54 million cases of flu, of which 18 to 26 million people had to have medical visits for. And then the death rate, the death numbers from the flu uh, are anywhere estimated to be between 24,000 and as high as 60,000 deaths uh, in this season. So to, to speak of, um, of the numbers of deaths from COVID-19 at this point, as being anywhere near the ballpark of the flu makes no scientific sense at all. It doesn't. So let me play my own devil's advocate for a second. So okay. if I do the math right and I get my zeros right, then we have about, of the 30 to 50 million people that'll get the flu, about 1% to 2% of those get hospitalized and about 0.1% die. Okay. Right. The numbers are still massive, but the percentage that dies. now. Here now, COVID, and I guess, again, it's had a lie with statistics, 
currently we're guessing that it's between one and 2% dying. But again, we have no idea how many people were asymptomatic or never even got tested because they didn't realize they had it. Right. Yes. And that's a very important point. I like to put it this way. Um, a lot of people can relate to this analogy. If I'm on a golf course and um, I'm playing and I'm not looking for the golf balls that are hidden in the woods and in the bushes and in the creek and in the pond, I'm not going to find any golf balls. I'm just going to play my round. But if I go searching for these golf balls, I'm going to find tons of them, thousands of them. The lake is full of them. And the analogy is so good because it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking to find or confirm something in a population, you're, you're obviously going to get your answer because you're looking for it. If you're not looking for it, you can't by definition have the headline that reads 8,000 new cases because a new cases, case means something's just been discovered in a person. So this is a crucial point that so many people fail to realize that that we don't know what percentage of the world population or the United States population would test positive for COVID-19. But I can assure you 100% the number is much larger than the number that was given before. In other words, the denominator of the fraction of people who are either sick or dying is much larger. And if that's true by logic, the death rate and the sickness rate goes way, way down. It's just simple mathematics. So why did everybody get so frightened and freaked out about this? I mean, what is it that makes Corona so scary? They didn't shut down the world for swine flu. We didn't shut down the flu, the world for SARS. We did shut down the world for bird flu. Now, is it the media? Is it that everything in social media land and ratings land is in extreme news report like what where did they lose their minds on this one um i think those two points you raised are valid um i don't want to take a broad paintbrush and smear any particular group on any side of this but i i do feel the media has had a role in stoking this i think social media has had a role in stoking these fears and I think that in our day of instant gratification, a lot of us, me included, we speak before we think. And it's so easy to go off on a tirade, no matter what your position is on a, on a, a subject, and, and express your opinion without carefully parsing the mathematics and the facts behind it. And that's why the opinions of some of the expert positions that I've read are so refreshing because they really take a critical view of what, what, how do we get to the truth here? And so to answer your original question, I think it's a combination of all those things that have led to this, in my opinion, quasi hysterical response. So is it, how much of this is legitimate in that this is a new bug, right? So that you get, there. there's diseases out there all the time. So flus have been around, um, yet people have some kind of community immunity, community, communal immunity, that they've, community immunity, it sounds funny, but that's the real phrase, right. that they've built up because it's been in the world. I remember years ago during the anthrax scare after 9-11 and being, you know, is very fearful, but someone said to me, you know, anthrax is around. There's antibodies out there that we, because we're exposed to it, actually, it's not a brand new thing. So how much of it is legitimate because this is a new strain of virus that nobody has any immunity to, Right. so that we really do have a higher risk. Although again, what's playing out is that it's just not as bad as they feared. Right. Um, well, for sure, it goes by a different name. So this is not the H1N1 flu or the swine flu or the avian flu or the X flu or the Y flu or the Z flu. This is Corona. So all of a sudden we have a new name to a similar illness in terms of the fact that it's caused by a virus and causes respiratory disease. So um, 
it, it, it's a new thing that's on the horizon, just came on the horizon. And, and because it's new and unknown, and there's quote unquote, no treatment for it, which on its face is a false statement, and I'll get to that later, um, to say that there's no treatment for coronavirus is a blatantly false statement. We'll come back to that. Um, so uh, because it's new and it's not known well in even the medical community in terms of how exactly it's spread, how quickly it's spread, how easily it's spread, how deadly is it, these questions are not exactly known. And so it's, it's suddenly become this big, scary thing because of those reasons and the reasons we talked about earlier. And again, because there's all the chatter about no treatment and no vaccine. So actually, let's talk about those treatments right now, because, um, I mean, there's no treatment for the flu either. There's Tamiflu, which reduces the um, the length of the flu. Right. But there really are no medicinal prescription treatments in the classic sense, like an antibiotic kills a bacteria. That's right. That and that's where, that's where people get confused that there's no treatment. So if there, if there were no treatment for coronavirus, why would you go to the hospital if there's no treatment? That makes no sense. I mean, supposedly a hospital is to treat you. Am I correct? So uh, theoretically, yes. But if there, if people are having a hard time breathing, they're going to go to the hospital. Right. So and support. So supportive care is treatment. You give supplemental oxygen. You give intravenous fluids to hydrate people. You give antipyretics to control fever. You give back, uh, antibiotics to control any supra-infection from bacteria. You give bronchodilators to give any treatment for uh, uh, exacerbation of asthma or reactive airway disease. So the statement that there's no treatment for coronavirus is blatantly false. There's no cure for it. There's no antibiotic or antiviral at this time for it, although they're talking about chloroquine and certain anti-HIV medicines as showing promise. But the statement that there's no treatment for it is absolutely false. We just talked about the treatment. Otherwise, why would you go to a, why would you go to a doctor? Well, and not only that, again, they're they're placing a different bar of of response on this. Then they accept in everything else. I think that there's they have this false safety blanket. Again, I think I said this already with the flu vaccine or that they think there's Tamiflu. But viruses run their course. A stomach virus, this kind of virus, that they just run their course. It's the way that they work. And you know, we talk a lot about bottom line about immune boosters and the importance of having your immune system strong. Now, I saw a doctor interviewed the other day, and they were asking this doctor about boosting your immune system and if that was a good thing to do and if that was strong. And this guy said, no. He said, vitamin C doesn't really do that much. Wash your hands. And he said, and if you boost your immune system too much, you could give yourself an autoimmune disease. Now, there are certain people with permeable membranes in their digestive tracts and that are vulnerable that might fall into like there's reasons that they, they become vulnerable to autoimmune diseases. But to tell people not to do things that will that can strengthen their bodies, change their diets, take some supplements that have been shown to be able to, to strengthen and give them, give them, you know, more defenses seem crazy to me. Yeah, it does seem crazy to me too. I will agree with you. Um, so uh, th there are certainly ways to help uh, boost your immunity and uh, anxiety is not one of them. Okay. So <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, the, the rampant rampant runaway anxiety from this is certainly not doing people's immune system any good. It's not doing their cardiac system any good. It's not doing their mental health any good. Um, so in a sense, the side effect from the hysteria is making people even more vulnerable to this and other infectious diseases, which is something that people don't seem to realize. So uh, yeah. But also getting back to your comment, the fact that Tamiflu is not a cure and that the vaccine for the flu is no guarantee that you won't get it. As a matter of fact, 40 to 60 percent of the flu vaccine uh, administrations are not effective in any given season. That just shows you that 
that there are no guarantees with the flu either. And indeed, that's why people die so much more from the flu, at least at this point, from COVID-19. But no one wants to listen to any of these comments. You're looked upon like you're some kind of, I don't know what, that you're somehow insensitive to the suffering of others or that you're trying to spin it for one political reason or another, or that there's some ulterior motive. And I would submit that the discussion that you and I are having is based on fact and not fear. And it's based on uh, the evidence of science and not some spin because you or I have a political motivation one way or the other. Yes, exactly, which is exactly why we're talking. So let's talk for a second. I wanna, I want people to understand these um, treatments, these um, are called the drug cocktails that they're exper experimenting with, the hydrochloroquine and the ZPAC um, or the HIV drugs, that you know, there are a whole bunch of people that are saying, shame on, and again, this is not political, but they're saying shame on the government because we or the healthcare system because we don't have treatment. And then God bless these, these researchers that are trying anything and everything they can to try and find something that will uh, attack and stop this. And they've come across this, you know, in particular, the antimalarial plus the ZPAC, the antibiotic, which seems to be very effective. But then they say, yeah, but there's a big risk because some people could die of AFib, you know, a regular heartbeat as a result of it. But the thing that people need to understand, in my mind, is that drugs take years and years and years of testing. And even once it's tested, then they still don't know how it is in every situation because people have other health issues. They have other drugs that they're on. Peace one. So every drug comes with its risks. And if they listen to all those things on the, at the end of the ads, they'll hear all those, you might die of a heart attack, a stroke, right. go blind, right. yes. deaf, dumb, and everything else. Yes. But they ignore that. And in this case, they're, they're going crazy over it. And oh, by the way, this is an off-label uh, off um, formulation, but there's a you probably know the numbers better than I do. The, the, the percentage, I think, what is it, 20% of all drugs prescribed are what's called off-label, which means there's never been any testing for it whatsoever. That's right. So your point is, is very well taken. Um, it, it all boils down to the obvious, which is cost-benefit. So, so if the risks of taking any medication, and, and you're right, when you look at the nightly news and you see the the ads for the pharmaceuticals and, you know, at the end is tell your doctor if you have this, that, the other thing, and it may cause X, Y, and Z. Uh, these are drugs that are being used by millions and millions and millions of patients all over the world. And no one bats an eyelash when they talk about the relative risks of taking these types of medicines like statins or blood thinners or things like that. But suddenly when uh, a potential drug combination shows could show promise for COVID-19, everybody goes completely insane. Now, I understand the importance of testing. I get that. And of research. I understand that too. And the importance of understanding the relative risk of taking the medicine versus the potential benefit. But if this is the national emergency that everyone claims it to be, why Why are they suddenly objecting to something that's already going on in their own lives, to their own treatment? Exactly. And in fact, to me, the use of the off-label medications, to me, you know, off-label medications are for the most part when, when you're in dire need. Like when cancer patients have had three, four, five different drugs and nothing is working. And that's when you take a chance on something that hasn't been tested before. And in this case, the people that should be taking this, again, are the ones that are in dire need because we don't have anything else. And if they don't take a chance, they may actually die. This isn't for the people that are having the sniffles and may or may not get worse. Right. I agree with that. And um, uh, certainly the use of off-label uh, medications in, in the case of severe illness is not uncommon at all. And I would agree that um, in cases where people do not seem to be responding to the supportive care uh, that uh, off-label use is entirely appropriate because, because you know, you're, you're, you're grasping at straws at that point. But um, it, it's, it's a shame that, that the, uh, the 
uh, hoarding has been going on of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine uh, because a lot of times the hoarding uh, uh, of, of these medications, it's just going to go to waste. It's not going to reach the people who really need it. Who's hoarding it? Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure I have statistics on that. I don't know if it's individuals within the healthcare community, doctors, nurses, and so on, or whether it's patients who already um, have a, a prescription and can get refills for it. I, I don't know the statistics on that, but I think there have been reports of people um, hoarding it either for financial gain or for potential use within them themselves and people they know. So I don't know. It's like just crazy to me. It's like yes. insanely crazy. All right, let's talk about the this whole ventilator and mask drama. Again, the numbers are we do like do we really not have that many masks? Like how do, again with as many people, so even at 55,000 people that have the sickness, 20% of them are going to the hospital. Some fraction of that's being admitted to the hospital. Across the entire country, how can there be this level of shortage of masks and ventilators? Yeah, it's 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 hard for me to believe too because in my medical career, we use masks like water. I mean, I would probably go through 10 masks a day in the operating room. And now suddenly to be out of something that is essentially a filtered paper product is, is something that's very difficult for me to understand. I mean, if we can have enough cigarettes and shoes and Coca-Cola and um, styrofoam boxes in this country, why can't we have enough masks and gloves and gowns? Um, I think one of the reasons that that may be the case is that a lot of this stuff is made overseas. We know that. And um, American manufacturing has not been uh, focused on making these things at home. So I don't have statistics on what percentage of those personal protective equipment uh, gear is made domestically versus foreign, but you'd have to think that has something to do with it. Well, I understand that aspect of it, but what I don't understand, again, we, there are 924,000 hospital beds across the United States. We have 55,000 people. Now there's 25 in New York City, so I grant that. I don't know how many hospital beds are in New York, but they didn't all come rushing in on the same day. Like they've been talking about the shortage for at least a week, if not two. You're referring to the, the masks and the gowns and the protective equipment? Yeah, yeah. And the ventilators. Yeah. Like there, there, are people, there are places where they're not using them. You know, they have very few people, very low incidence. Ship them across the country. Like I cannot believe 924,000 hospital beds, however many hospitals there are, how many storage rooms there are, that with this number of people, they magically vanished. Really? Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that because let me give people a, a sense of where ventilators come from in terms of the, the, the places in the hospital you would find them. Um, there are two basic locations for ventilators or ventilator type machines in the hospital. One is in obviously the intensive care unit. So um, if you have an ICU with uh, 10 beds, 15 beds, you have at least 15 ventilators and some backup ones. But what most people don't understand is in the uh, operating room, every anesthesia machine by definition has a ventilator attached to it. So uh, this is the reason why a lot of elective surgeries are being postponed in the United States because it frees up not only personnel, but the ventilator uh, that is on the anesthesia machine. So it's puzzling to me that there is, if there is, I don't know if this is the truth, quote, a ventilator shortage in the United States at this time. I, I have a hard time believing it. Do you have any idea what percentage of the patients that are going in, again, of the you know 100 patients, how many are going to the hospital? How many of them are admitted to the hospital? How many of them are requiring, you know, going into ICU and requiring ventilators? Um, I think the original estimates was something like 5%, I believe. That we're um, needing ventilators? Yeah, uh, well, no, 5% needing critical care 
attention and less needing ventilators. So, but even if we're generous and we say something like 4%, um, then that would mean, according to the numbers that you gave me, uh, in the United States, we had, um, you said there were about 94,000 cases in the United States documented? Uh, yeah, that was the latest number right before I came online. Right. So if um, 5% or 4% of, of those patients needed to be ventilated, you're looking at probably 3,000, 3,500 ventilators, okay? And, and how we, certainly, we certainly have that amount in the United States. That's kind of what it figures to me. Exactly. And so this statement that we're running out of ventilators does not seem to reflect the actual situation on the ground. So a lot of people confuse a statement like we could run out of ventilators with we're running out of ventilators. So I had this discussion with uh, a friend of mine in New York City who made the statement that New York is rapidly running out of ventilators. And I said, well, what, what basis do you have to make that statement? And he said, well, I heard the governor say it and I read it in the New York Times. And I said, well, let's examine what you're saying here. If you're saying that you're running out of ventilators, by definition, since a person who needs a ventilator cannot survive more than 24 to 48 hours or maybe a little bit more without a ventilator, by that very definition, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients will be dying in the street in New York City. Hundreds every day because you just claim there's a shortage of ventilators. But that's not happening. So that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Well, again, just so this is interesting. Yesterday I saw, again, another headline. It said something about you know, death skyrocket in New York. And I forget if it was like 20 or 40, some, some I'll call it dozens of deaths. Tragic. I'm not trying to diminish that. Yes. Do you know how many people die in New York City every day? I would guess it's a lot more than that number. Um, if my math is right, it's about 160. One person every nine minutes. One person every One nine person minutes. One person every nine minutes. Yeah. Oh, dies yeah. in New York. So, so, so again, it, it's an excellent point that we're, we're paying attention to selective things because we want to make the numbers fit our world's view or our idea of what is happening or what could happen, whereas you have to understand statistics as cold, hard facts. And, and I think Dr. Offit put it so perfectly when he described the, the um, difference between the absolute risk and the, and the relative risk. Uh, Dr. Offit from Pennsylvania said, officials say that 10 times more likely, it's 10 times more likely for people to die from COVID than the flu. Uh, but that's, that's not true because people are much more likely to die from the flu because the flu is so much more prevalent and the flu kills so many more people than COVID has killed that if you do the numbers, the, the absolute risk of dying from COVID is much less than the absolute risk of dying from the flu. So people need to well, be very careful about what they say. Yes. Well, and again, when he was doing those numbers, he's looking at just the reported cases. That number is probably far lower. You're talking about the death rate from Corona. We don't even know because there are so many unreported cases of Corona. That's and right. Total, and, right. So that, that that denominator is much bigger than anybody's really giving it credit for. Right. And so if you look at the example from the uh, the ship in California, the the princess and also the numbers from even from China and from South Korea, I would think when this is all said and done and all the science has been collated, I would not be surprised if you found a death rate of between Point zero zero point zero point three and zero point five percent. I would not be surprised at all. So um, I think it would be in agreement to what's coming out of South Korea. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of lessons learned on this. Let me switch. Let's go back to something you were talking about before. Um, and this is now like these these are giant ethical issues surrounding this. Again, we've shut down the country for the sake of this. The entire country paralyzed the economy, everybody. So through it, there's 
all this kind of collateral damage of the quarantine. You were referring to it before. Increased stress, increased anxiety. I sent a note to a, a cardiologist friend of mine yesterday, but she, did, she said it's too early to tell. How many more heart attacks are occurring because of the increased stress and anxiety going on? Um, how much suicide is going to occur because of people that are now being financially ruined as a result of this? Yes. You mentioned delayed elective surgery. Like, there are women with, that need breast lumpectomies that aren't happening. That's right. Um, and then at the smallest level, all of us are sitting at home now in makeshift offices, spending hours on a laptop, and it's making a mess of necks and backs and headaches. <laughs> like, That's but for sure. All, That's this, all, all these other things are happening that will stress the healthcare system as a result of all of this. Like it's, this, this is fascinating. Well, also uh, think of the emergency rooms and healthcare facilities that are being clogged by people without much symptoms or signs at all, but they think they have coronavirus and they go running to the hospital or to the doctor or to the health clinic. So, you know, if, if you, because they have a sniffle or because their temperature is 99.1 because they have a body ache or something. This is exactly the kind of an effect that you're referring to. Uh, we're not talking about the people who are legitimately ill with high fever, difficulty breathing, severe shaking chills and body aches, um, loss of weight, inability to stand up. We're not talking about those severely ill people we're talking about the strains put on the system by people who are imagining that they may be ill. And since this COVID is shown not to produce illness in the majority of people, you, you have problems with the healthcare system compounded. Well, and again, with the headlines and all the fear and the anxiety, I can, it's going to be fascinating to see six months from now, eight months from now, the prescription, you know, the prescriptions written for stress and anxiety medications and for yes. cardiac and for like, and for painkillers and yes. all of that. Yes. Yes. So, so there are, there are very heavy repercussions. You know, it's like a pebble thrown in a pond and the, the pebble is sending out waves to the shore. Um, this, this is having a very strong ripple effect in, in exactly what you're referring to. So I like to uh, rely on people who come out of very respected medical institutions such as Dr. Offit from Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia, a professor of infectious disease at the University of Pennsylvania. He says, quote, it doesn't make sense to shut down our entire way of life to try and stop a virus that is unlikely to harm healthy people and will be far less devastating than flu epidemics, end quote. I, I happen to agree with that statement. Uh, I was reading the Washington Post yesterday and was happy to see another quote by an epidemiology, which is a person who studies the spread of disease from Stanford University, who writes, one of the bottom lines is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society, and mental health of our population. I'm deeply concerned that the social, economic, and public health consequences of this near total meltdown of normal life will have long lasting and calamitous and possible graver than the direct toll of the virus itself, says David L. Katz, a preventative medicine specialist at Yale University. The unemployment, impoverishment, and despair likely to result will be the public health scourge of the first order. So you have respected physicians from highly respected institutions, University of Pennsylvania, Stanford, Yale, who are offering a sobering opinion of the effects of the hysteria and the government's response to COVID-19. I'm very happy it's them saying it and not me because these are these are very, very well-known and highly respected academic physicians. I am not an academic physician and never have professed to be one. But these are men, people, doctors who study these problems and have come out with these very strong statements, in my opinion, of they're putting their medical and professional reputations on the line by actually saying what uh, a lot of people in the present administration are saying. 
Yeah, so it, it, here's what frightens me. That I heard, I heard a TV doctor this morning um, talking about, you know, they're starting to talk about if we open up certain areas of the country again, right? And yeah. originally, they were talking about, let's all go into quarantine to what they call bend the curve, right? To slow it down. They weren't thinking about nobody should get sick, but they needed to be able to handle the processing of the people through the system. And suddenly this morning, she was talking like, if we open up again, then what happens if there's another bump and that people will get sick again? And the thing that frightens me is if the societal perspective on this and wish is that nobody's going to get sick and that that is, that is an unrealistic thing to happen and that the, you know, the media has to send the message of what these doctors are saying and the people have to understand part of life. Sometimes like you don't wish anybody ill, but that we cannot live in quarantine or our entire society will fall apart. That, that's true. And that's where this gets very sensitive because there seems to be a pervasive attitude that illness and personal suffering is not acceptable. Now, let's try to, let's try to understand that statement that I just made. No one with an ounce of morality would ever wish ill on anybody else, first of all. No one would wish that someone else would get sick or become ill or even, God forbid, die. So if we start with that premise, the so-called infinite value of every soul, which I aspire to, to I, I, I agree with that, that doesn't change the fact that in every society, there's going to be illness and there's going to be morbidity and mortality. That's an inescapable fact of life. So with the COVID-19 epidemic, there seems to be a cultural shift in the ability to accept the very hard and unfortunate fact that some of us, any one of us, could become ill and die from any number of causes and that it suddenly has become something that is intolerable. And I have some theories as to why this might be the case, but we can talk about that later. But I think that's what you're getting at. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that's going to be, that's a discussion for another day. I think that there's going to be, you know, many ethics classes taught on this. I think that we're going to, you know, my fear is that we're going to have another wave of another sickness. We're going to have the flu season every year. And unless we can come around to exactly what you're saying and understand, sadly, that is part of life. We cannot control the inability of, of somebody to tragically get sick at some point. Then right. we will never be able to move forward and get out of our houses. Yeah. Well, especially in light of the fact that people don't discuss uh, the death rate from flu and they don't discuss the ongoing terrible death rate from cardiovascular disease, uh, opioid abuse, um, any number of uh, tobacco abuse, any number of uh, illnesses that plague our society, they've taken a back seat to this for some reason. And well, it, it's very difficult uh -huh. from a cultural point of view to figure out why. Yes, I agree. Well, even things as simple as I think there are 90,000 visits a year to emergency rooms because of Tylenol overdose. Right. Like, this is, you know, my hope is that this will open eyes to a whole other level of personal responsibility for, for individual health, for understanding the risk reward of, you know, medications. And that, you know, again, there's there's going to be an entire cultural shift as a, as a result of this. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Right. Um, you know, I was thinking about um, why this might be the case. And um, we have to look at um, what, what crises have we faced as a population together and whether um, it's been so long since there's been a truly dangerous natural crisis that we've forgotten how to deal with it. Um, you know, the, the, you know, 9-11 was a national crisis and uh, 
Vietnam War, the era then was somewhat of a national crisis and race riding was and is a national crisis, but maybe there is an inability to to effectively deal with a national crisis when it arises that could be part and parcel of of the reaction that we're seeing now. Um, it could be. I mean, it's an interesting, again, I think that people are opening their eyes to the multiple levels of this. I was thinking this morning that like this quarantine, because overall, across all aisles, across all perspectives, people are doing their share of staying home. You know, there, there are few people that are out, but, and not, and not doing as they're supposed to. But overall, even if I think it's a little bit extreme, we're all, we're doing it. We're doing what we're supposed to do for the sake of the nation and for, you know, all for one and one for all. I was thinking that, you know, this quarantine, I'll call it, is our modern day version of the World War II Victory Gardens, you know, where everybody pitched in for the sake of, of our warriors. Yeah, um, in a sense, that's true. Um, yeah. It, it, it will be fascinating to see how this will be taught by historians and by psychologists and sociologists, because... Uh, it, it it's somehow a, a reflection of a national uh, sentiment, and um, it seems to be causing a lot of division among um, political parties, among the way people view the world, and um, it's it's uh, it's it's you know coming in an election season. I don't know how much of that has to do with the reaction or not. I'm not a politician or a political analyst, so I don't know. I don't know. Right, but the most importantly that I want, and I really appreciate your time on this and your, and your thoughts and knowledge was for people to understand that there's a whole other level of thought that they need to get to underneath the headlines and understand these numbers. So David, thank you so much. People listen to, subscribe to his blog, What Your Doctor Isn't Telling You. It's on the Bottom Line Inc. website. He's so smart and so provocative in his perspective. Um, so thank you very much. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. I'm talking to Dr. David Shear about the assorted issues for our society as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, including the fact that the numbers just don't quite add up the way the media is saying, and the importance, the vital nature of patient advocacy and what we need to do to take care of ourselves in a strained healthcare system. Dr. Shear's message of self-advocacy being a critical part of patient care is just one from the thousands of experts who provide their actionable expert advice in our twice-monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal. In addition to Dr. Shear's insights into the healthcare system, Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double-fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.